work? We're just talking about mullets. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the Ferrant Favel Generation X podcast is powered by Biscuit Tees and Favel Fitness. Bringing you unique comfort and style while optimizing a healthy, organic lifestyle. Doing? Oh, doing okay. Hanging in there. Yeah. I guess that's what we're all doing right now, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Looking forward to summer and all the fun stuff that comes with it. So, yeah. And you're in Jersey, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, up in Jackson. So, what so, in the summer, do you stick around or do you go up north? Uh, no, I uh, hang down in uh, Long Beach Island. Oh, nice. Yeah. I love it down we're, there. Yeah, we've been going there for eh, like 35 years, something like that. So oh, that's great. Yeah, I know. Uh, Keith, you used to run into Keith and Joyce Allen quite a bit. Down I was going to say, didn't the Allens have a house right there on like the water, the channel way or something right there, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, they were on the water. So we, uh, I, I used to have to go by their place to, to get to where I was. So we we're about three miles apart. So I used to wait till my dad used to come visit in the summer and then. Because uh, Keith loved clams, so I'd go out, and, I'd go clamming, and take Dad with me, and then we we'd go out and visit uh, Keith and Joyce for a while. Ah, so. with fresh clams, that's all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Is uh, that where they they took the picture? There's always a legendary photo of your dad reeling in a giant fish, and he's just he's jacked. But I, I was wondering if that's where uh, where that photo. Oh no, from. that that picture was from down in uh, down in Florida. Uh, so okay. uh, down in the, we had some buddies that lived down at Fort Lauderdale, and then actually the uh, his name was uh, uh, Al Philpot, and his son Bob, uh, actually uh, Bob Marty, my my brother Marty, and myself were we're all really good friends. We do a lot of fish with Bob now. So, but that was taken in one of the canals down in uh, uh, I guess it used to be North Miami Shores years ago. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, what I was think, he reeling in? What, what did he catch? I was always curious. <laughs> oh, right there where they reeled in? No, yeah. they only had the pole tied to the dock. Dad did a lot of fish with them. So we uh, actually, the first time I caught a marlin, we were down in Ecuador. And we've been to Ecuador and uh, Virgin Islands and Panama and a lot of places with uh, with their family. So, and I, I fished down in... Uh, down in Louisiana, uh, the Bahamas, and the Virgin Islands, and off Florida wow. quite a bit with their son Bobby. So, did you ever fish with my dad? Uh, no, but you'd die laughing. I because uh, <laughs> I, I have a t I have a tower on my boat, and so a lot of times uh, if there's a cloud cover, the radio signals bounce, so you can actually hear quite a distance. And uh, I oh, it was, it was a long time ago, but I remember there was a boat on the radio. And he's going, hey, Dare, what you got there? What you catch there? <laughs> and I'm trying to call back. I said, there's only one guy I know. And I said, Bernie, so he, Bernie was fishing down south somewhere. So. But he never heard me. Hey, Dare. <laughs> hey, Dare, what you got there? That's so funny. <laughs> you know, he caught a 900-pound marlin off the Cape May coast. Oh, I know. I've seen pictures of it. So you, you, you would laugh so late. So when when your dad was uh, goalie coach and in the locker room all the time and 
uh, we'd have an important playoff game and, you know, you win the game, do whatever. And your dad always came in and, and I don't know if you know how superstitious he was, oh, but yeah. <laughs> the, the fourth, the fourth cinder block up right from the very end, he'd come in, he'd tap on it a couple of times nah. and then he'd <laughs> enter into the locker room and he always came over to me. So no matter what game, whether you won, lost, the importance of a game, he'd come over and all he did was talk fishing with me. So that's so funny. <laughs> I didn't renew the cinder block thing because he's so superstitious. He always has been, but I didn't yeah. know he did that. That's why I can totally see that. That's so he, 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 I'd see him come walking in and cause, uh, myself, Keith act and a couple guys sat right there and every time I'd say, watch, there he goes. And he, he tap with it, <laughs> let him give it this one here and then he'd keep coming. So <laughs> did your dad have his superstitions like that? Or is that more of a go- uh, goalie thing? No, I think, uh, I think a lot of people did. I never saw any that my dad had. Yeah. Um, no, like with me, I, I used to try to get dressed in the same order and, uh, you know, put the same amount of tape on or whatever. And I, and I used to laugh because, and then uh, one of the most superstitious guys that I played with was Ron Hextall. And at the end of every warm up, I had to come in and I had to shoot and he had to make sure he caught it. So I would just shoot for a glove hand, he'd catch it. And then as soon as he did that, he'd skate and go off the ice and that would be it. Did he ever and, not catch it? Well, there was, <laughs> he was having a bit of a tough time. Uh, I think it might've been his last year here and he had lost like six or seven in a row. So it got to the end of warm up, and I just kept skating around. I, I wouldn't sit and shoot. And so he's, he was getting mad and he's screaming at me to come and shoot. I said, look at whatever you're doing, it ain't working. So we're going to change it. So, and we ended up winning that night. Oh, so. I was going to say, did you? Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. after that game, did you continue to shoot or did that end? Yeah, I went back to yeah. shooting. So got to keep the goalies happy. So. Yeah, there are a strange crew, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. They're a different breed for they sure. They are. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on with us. I really appreciate it. I know it's a busy time for everybody. So Yeah. No, it's good. No, I'm glad to help out. Yeah. And Chico, I mean, we had a blast with him, of course. You know, yeah, so. yeah no, Ch- Chico's a good guy. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> so did did you quiz him about you know, the big brawl we had in eighty seven and warm up? Oh, you know yeah. Ch- Chico started that, right? <laughs> <laughs> did you know that? Well he yeah, he kind of Put a little bit of a different spin on it, maybe. Well, no, and, and that whole, <laughs> like as well, speaking of superstition, that whole brawl was about superstition. Yeah, he did say that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah. Where that's were you all. when that broke out? Were you uh, on the ice? Uh, yeah, pretty well everybody was on the ice. Yeah. We, we, so, uh, but w- when we sat in the locker room, they always put us in numerically. So, as soon as you got in the door, number two would be right there. And so, somebody said, oh, there's a brawl going out. And, so I was the first one out the door, but on the way out, I grabbed my stick because I said, you never know what's going to happen. So the guys were making fun of me for being the only guy with a stick. And I said, the other one was Doug, Doug Crossman was in the bathroom and he had on a pair of sandals. So he was out on the ice with a pair of sandals. <laughs> Doug, yeah. he's a hoot, that one. <laughs> yeah. Chico did take a bit of the blame for that one. So, but I think he blamed Boxcar as well, said they had one job to do, and it wasn't to let them score. So he yeah, scored right. because, you know what, we, we, we got to handle this. So anyway. <laughs> no, I, I know. Yeah. It was kind of, but yeah, when you, when, you, when you start hearing about it and you say, well, there's a 45-minute brawl and warm-up, and it was all about superstition. So uh-huh. that kind of explains it all. 
It's so true. I mean, my dad was always like, he had his pregame thing. He had, you know, what he ate, the time, how long his nap was, how he put his shoes on, the fork and knife couldn't cross, like every (laughs) second of every game. I like having having my routine. I mean, I I like to uh, be, I'd like to have eaten by at least one o'clock. I wanted to be asleep by 1.30. I'd sleep till 3.45, 4 o'clock. And then get up and, and I'd have like three or four glasses of iced tea about this big. So I'm loaded with caffeine <laughs> and I want, I wanted to get into the rink every day at five 30. So I'd leave Morristown around five and get in right around five 30 and, uh, wouldn't have been able to do that nowadays with the way 295 backs right. up. Right, you'd have to yeah. leave at like four. <laughs> yeah, so I, and I actually remember one time. So I was I was going over the Walt Whitman Bridge, and it was uh, 525. So I was right on time, and no more than 200 yards in front of me, a tractor trailer jackknifed. Oh, so it closed down the bridge, and I'm sitting on the bridge, and I no traffic's going anywhere. And I'm looking at my watch going, oh, my God, like I said, I might be late for warm up. And so I knew I'd already missed the meeting. And then I now it's getting near the end of where I said, oh, my God, I'm going to miss the game. So I finally just took my car and I went on the other side of the road and went by the cops and everybody. <laughs> and I just sped as fast. So and I caught the last two minutes of warm up. Wow. So um, but we had made a trade. I think Mike Bullard was there and somebody else. And so they're in the locker room and they're going, wow, where's Mark Howe? I guess he's got in his contract. He doesn't need to warm up or anything. <laughs> so I said, no, that's, that's not the way it Meanwhile. is. So, yeah, I know. And everybody said, you need to get here earlier. I said, no, I get here at 530. Our meeting's at six. I got plenty of time. So, yeah. I said, so it was did, unavoidable. For When your routine got messed up, would it mess with your head or you just go with the flow with it? No, nah, it, messed, it messed with you a little bit. But it's like, uh, but a lot of times, oddly enough, I would play a lot better. I mean, my favorite thing, I love to do the morning skate. It was, you go out, you skate, it's fun, it's enjoyable. Um, But as I got older, and especially after my back surgery, where it was actually counterproductive, because you're out there, you're expending your energy. And when... uh, so when Paul Harmon coached, he said, I'm not letting you go out on the ice for morning skate. I said, you can't do that to me. And so I'd come to the game and I'd be rattled and I like, cause my routine was so mm-hmm. off, but in actuality, I ended up playing a lot better just because I don't know whether you're maybe more focused because it's going to be harder or, and I know some of it was, I had more energy in my legs. And uh, so it was a good thing, but man, it was hard to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just those little those little things that just rattle you when yeah, I get that way just in my normal everyday life sometimes, let alone, you know, playing a game like that. So yeah. but Paul's yeah, a smart agree. man. Oh yeah. We have uh, like my first two years here. So they kept us uh out at uh, a hotel by King of Prussia. And for and everybody on the team lived in Jersey at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, because of the traffic coming in on the Schuylkill like my nap had to end at three. We had to be on the bus at three thirty or three forty-five. Then we we're on the bus for an hour trying to get oh. to the game. And oh yeah, it might just they put you all the way up there? 
Well, they just, that was the thing. They tried to keep everybody away from their families. And as I, I always found it counterproductive, but yeah. uh, then they, they got, uh, when Mike Keenan got here two years later, they, they got rid of all that. So, uh, and it wasn't an issue. Um, I know years and years ago with my dad, they used to take him and, um, uh, cause he played in Detroit. They used to take all the players and they'd keep them down in Toledo, but the playoffs back then were only a month long. So, but yeah, you didn't see them. I remember a few times we hopped in the car with my mom and we'd be down visiting dad at one, two o'clock in the morning. So, uh, you know, and I think they did it. I, I, I doesn't make sense, but especially back then, instead of being at home with your family where you're kind of least under the one roof and in control, guys would be down there drinking back right. in the day. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then, like I said, then you're driving an hour and a half from Toledo to come up to play the game in Detroit. So, uh, but I don't know. For some people, I think they liked it. I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and when did that start to change? I mean, in general, not just... They don't do that anymore at all, do they? No, no, they don't. So uh, I think probably, uh, probably in the seventies, I would think, because uh, I know back in the sixties, I mean, they the, in the fifties and stuff, they owned you, and yeah. you know, they 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 owned your family, and <laughs> like the wives weren't part of anything. There was there was no wives' lounge. There was none of that. So they were lucky they got in the building half the time. So. <laughs> um, but I think through uh, through the evolution of time and, uh, you know, now it's it's like when, uh, when my kids were born, I wasn't, every time they were born, I was on the road and I wasn't allowed to go home. So I never saw my kids uh, mm-hmm. being born. Uh, so, but I know when I was in Detroit like 10 years ago and uh, the team plane took off and they had left somebody behind because their wife was due within a day or two. And then on the uh, on the way back, we had to stop at a different place to pick up somebody else because their wife had gave birth two days before, but now he's ready to come back to work. So, <laughs> so and I think that I mean for me, I, obviously that's for the good. It's for because um, it's it's you know I don't know of anybody who had any kind of success without uh, having a, a strong family base. Yeah. I mean, my dad, I think he was hunt- my, on my birthday is early October. So he was on a hunting trip when I was born. And Bernie is May. So he was playing hockey when Bernie was born. So it was. Uh, but, okay. but, you know, you couldn't be in the delivery room then anyway. You know, so my dad couldn't have been in with her. But but speaking of strong families, um, your mom apparently was one of the a trailblazer and just um really well-known and respected in the hockey world, which like you're saying, wasn't as usual back then. No, they, and, and a lot of people didn't like it. The people in the game, the, uh, you know, the old established group. Uh, but, uh, she, you know, she pushed for, you know, the rights of, uh, of the wives and, uh, of, of family members. And, and, uh, you know, also, you know, back then you walked in and, uh, they would just put a contract down. You signed it. That's a, if you didn't sign it, like you didn't play. So, and my dad was a very trustworthy person and, you know, he knew, uh, he was one of the best in the league. If, you know, he never, ever thought he was the best, but he knew he was one of the best wanted to be paid accordingly. And they said, okay, Gordy. And, uh, you know, they would sign him to a contract. Uh, well, they made a trade with Toronto. I think they had Carl Brewer and Bobby Bond came over and, and they grabbed dad and they said, look, 
you're making $75,000, we're each making a hundred grand a year. Like the Red Wings are really taking advantage of you. Uh, and I think that's when my mom started to get involved and, um, uh, and they didn't like it, but, uh, she was just taking care of the family is what she was doing. And, uh, I know she was one of the first women to ever do it. And, um, and that's kind of how, and she ended up representing, uh, dad, Marty and I, we went to Houston and the WHA and also to Hartford. I was going to ask uh, if that played a part in that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, and I, it was my mom, I trusted her. And I, like, actually when we left Houston, um, I had a great offer. My rights were owned by the Boston Bruins and, uh, and I wanted to go play in the NHL. Uh, and they actually, they offered me a five-year contract that paid, uh, uh, 225,000 a year. Uh, and then I ended up, my deal with Hartford was a 10-year contract that paid 200,000 a year. Um, so the Boston contract was a better contract. I was dying to go to Boston. I wanted to play in the NHL. Uh, but had I done that, my dad would have had to retire. So I said, well, I, that's not, <laughs> not going to be on my resume. My mom, yeah, I, and I expressed to my mom, you know, my, my concerns, my feel. I said, look, I want to play in the NHL. Like, that's just, she said, yeah. you're going to get there. She said, the leagues will either, either merge or, you know, you're going to be in that league in, uh, in the NHL in a couple of years. So um she said but take the opportunity to you know stay playing with your dad and your brother and which to me is obviously the uh, the biggest thrill of my career was playing on the same team with my dad my brother and i played every year together basically so and a lot of people do that but um, how many years did you get to play with them before they merged with the nhl uh well we played four years together in okay. houston and, and then two years together uh with the new england whalers and then the leagues merged and they became the hartford whalers so dad played one more year so uh he was but he was a young 52 at the yeah. time so now <laughs> playing with him was it an easy transition or like being father son versus being teammates did you learn anything different about your dad or see him in a different way yeah, it was, uh, well, when we're down in Houston, and it, plus uh, at that time, so you're early September, and as you would know, like you're, when your dad went away for training camp, you skated twice a day every day for three, three and a half weeks before you ever played an exhibition game. Uh, down in Houston at the time, the humidity is 100%. It was 104, 105 degrees. Uh, uh, Marty and I had been skating. We ran a hockey school where I skated eight hours a day, six days a week for a month. So we're, we were in pretty good shape, skating shape. Uh, my dad had been retired two years, uh, played like 50 alumni games each year. And then he was trying to come back under those conditions. And, that, and plus he was 45 years of age. I mean, most people are long retired at 45, let alone thinking of coming out of retirement. And we were we were maybe two weeks into training camp, and uh, Marty and I would come home, and we grabbed my mom one day. We said, "Look, we're really worried about Dad. Like, <laughs> it's, like it, you could see how hard it was on him." And you know, I said, "And I said, we're you know we're worried about him either having a heart attack or like I don't know how he's going to do this." And so I guess mom sat and had a heart to heart with dad and they, uh, they talked to coach Bill Deneen and, um, you know, Bill was encouraging. Um, you know, my mom just told Gordy, like you do what you got to do. You figure it out. 
And I don't know what he did, but he must have reset his mind. And about a week later, couldn't keep up to him. So I mean, he had the most uh, wow. most endurance of any athlete I've ever seen. So, uh, and what was so great about it was he won the MVP of the league that year. He was 45. Wow. Could have won it the next year. I think he was a nominee the next year, but that's how good he was. So when you were a kid growing up, because Corey and I, it's one of the reasons why we started this growing up as, you know, kids of, you know, NHL players and you were, of course, your own wonderful player. But growing up with your dad, when did it hit you that your dad was who he was or like what was your experience as a little kid before you played growing up with him? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think it's ever really hit me. Um, you know, the player he was, I know, I know what it was, but, uh, what has impacted me far more, um, as a kid and as an adult now was the person that he was, the mm-hmm. father he was, uh, had nothing to do with him being a hockey player. I know how great a hockey player he was, but like he was so much better a father role model, uh, that type of thing that, that's what I always looked at. Um, you know, for me, me playing hockey, I mean, I, like I said, I started skating at two. I think I played organized hockey at four. Uh, and I always knew, I, I always had in my blood, I, every once in a while, dad would have to take us to school on the way to practice. And, uh, and I would say, oh, come on, don't tell mom. Please take me with you. Take me with you. <laughs> and maybe, one, maybe two, three times a year, he'd say, okay, don't tell anybody. And he'd go in, he'd sign, he'd sign a, a permission slip. And so I'd be off and I'd go to practice with him. And then, you know, later in the day, he'd bring us home when we were supposed to. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 I always loved being in the rink, loved being on the ice. And, uh, and it wasn't because my dad was Gordy Howe. It's just it was something I was born with. Yeah, Chico had mentioned too how I guess your dad was the face of was it Eaton's? Oh um, yeah, Eaton's. Yeah, and that you would it's, travel with him to the different department stores, and I thought that must have been like a special time for you, like father son. It's not about who your dad is; it's just about having time with your dad. Oh, big time! Oh yeah, like uh, yeah. So dad at the time was making thirty thousand dollars a year. Uh, and he's, uh, for people who don't, Eaton's is kind of like Sears of the United States. Uh, and, um, so he would travel, uh, the entire, uh, East coast all the way out to Victoria Island out in, uh, British Columbia. And so, and he would spend a whole month. I think usually it was the month of July, uh, that he'd be out there. So what I would do, so dad would, uh, do all the cities in the East. He would hit every single Eaton store. And but usually by the time he hits somewhere in the Midwest, normally normally around Winnipeg, something like that, uh, I would they put me on a plane. I'd meet Dad, and then I would travel the last two weeks uh, with him and be in a hotel night every night with them. And so you you might go to a smaller town where they have two eating stores. Well, he he'd sit there and sign autographs all day. Maybe have a speaking engagement. Uh, then the next day they'd maybe have another speaking engagement and, uh, maybe a golf tournament. Uh, and then they'd have four or five free hours where they put us out on a boat and we go fishing together. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, the father, son, the quality time was, was incredible. But what I remember probably more than anything was, uh, cause they had these little, uh, little, uh, postcards. They're like three by five postcards with dad with Eaton's. 
And dad would sit and sign every single one. He'd sit there at night and sign anywhere from two to three to 4,000, depending wow. upon how much time. Yeah. And I would say, well, dad, why, why are you doing this? And he said, well, so he would pre-sign it, but then for every person that was in line, uh, like he would, he, he said it allowed him a little extra time to sit and interact with the people. And so say the boy's name was Billy. Hey, Billy, how you doing? Dad would be, you know, give him an elbow, twisting his nose, doing, mm-hmm. pulling, doing something. Yeah, but then he would personalize every oh. single, uh, but so, but, but I, I distinctly remember asking, well, why do you do that? And, and he would sit there for, I don't know, six hours, seven hours. And he was an autograph machine. I mean, it was like, and, and everyone was identical. I, they were almost stamped on, they were so good, but, uh, yeah. So, but that, but that's who he was. He, and even later on in life, I know when he had problems with dementia and everybody said, why do you still have him going out there? And why is he in the public? And I said, well, that's what turns him on. He could struggle and struggle. And I remember he did a show down in Baltimore. I drove him down from Philly and, and he was having a, he was kind of a wreck that day. And anybody who's dealt with people with dementia, they know what I'm talking about. And, uh, but as soon as I parked the car and as soon as I turned the, the, uh, the ignition off, it's like somebody turned on a switch with him. He went inside and for the next three hours, he was, he was lit up. Uh, his interaction with people was phenomenal. Uh, once that was over, I got him back in the car. He slept, I think he slept three and a half hours. So I got him in the driveway, but I said that that's what kept him going. He, he just loved being around the people, the interaction. Uh, I know when I was a kid, well, you'd, you, you'd wait around the rink forever for your dad to get out of the locker room so you could go home. And I love it. I'd sit in the back of the old Olympia and I'd have a tape ball and, uh, dad wouldn't leave until he signed every single autograph. Um, uh, you know, back then, obviously, the fans had access to the players. And, um, and sometimes it'd be an hour after game. But he would sign every single one. And he told me one day, he said, look, these are the people that pay for my salary. He said, I, I owe them that much respect. So, uh, like I said, when, uh, so when I talked about him as a person, these are just some of the examples of uh, the way he conducted himself. And, it, and it, it was all genuine. It was all real. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't work. Um, it was just, it was part of him and part of what made him such a uh, great human being. And I guess that's what led to you being such a humble, great human being too. (laughs) But it's funny though, um, I was going to ask because at the spectrum, same thing. Like, I don't remember my dad playing. I don't ever remember a moment realizing he was whatever he was, but, but it's those moments waiting in the hallways after the game and you had like the tape puck. I had my baby dolls and whatever, but just, um, they're just special memories and moments just growing up in those halls, running around the spectrum, you know, and I just uh, I could totally picture the whole thing when you were just talking about that. Yeah. And when I was a young teenager and they, uh, and every, like every usher was the same, like, and they all knew me. Here's this young 12, 13, 14 year old kid running around the building, and <laughs> I had to, I had to run of the place. And uh, yeah, people that I used to go down there some days and skate, and uh, if I could get a ride there, and I'd get there at nine in the morning, and I'd stay till four or five o'clock in the afternoon, just be at the rink all by myself. And so your uh, brothers they, wouldn't would they hang with you too, or it was more just you? Uh, no, it was now the. Uh, Marty was a very good hockey player, but he just didn't have the same passion I did. Like I said, the uh, 
it, somebody said you had to go and practice for nine hours, you, you'd look and say, yeah, for, like, that ain't happening. <laughs> but when you're a kid growing up, I mean, you just, you love, I just love to be on the ice and, and doing this stuff. And, uh, but even uh, there was uh, an old guy, Jesse, that used to run the concessions and uh, he, he watched me for about a week and he came out. He says, like, Mark, aren't you getting hungry? I said, oh, God, I'm starved. So he'd take me, he'd take me into the back and he'd cook up some hot dogs, some popcorn, pour a soda. And Aww. we'd sit with him. Then after a while, like, I knew he liked donuts. So I'd start bringing Jesse donuts. But yeah, like, like all the people down there, they were, they were great to me. So, yeah. I mean, my memories of being in the rink and around the rink are, it's kind of, it's like a home away from home. Really is. Yeah. I was so sad when that spectrum went down. It was, that was a heartbreaker because there's just so yeah, many memories there. And just that old building was so fun. And, you know, I just, that was, sad. I mean, it is what it is. It, you know, the, the old buildings are going to go down, but it was still sad. It's, it's progress, they say. Yes. But yeah. The, uh, yeah. But the memories, just the atmosphere of playing in the building was, uh, you know, especially in uh, the teams your dad played with. I mean, they were such an intimidating team to play against. And, uh, you know, like I've heard interviews from guys that play with the Islanders and they'd say, oh, they'd be playing cards and having a wonderful time. And as soon as that bus hit the Walt Whitman Bridge, they said, oh, my God, we're, we're getting oh, no. so close to the Lions in here. Like, it got serious really quick. And, um, yeah, I remember the first first few times I was a member of the Hartford Whalers, we came in and played in the Spectrum. And, and it wasn't this – they were still pretty tough, but they weren't as tough as the Broad Street Bullies teams. And uh, we had guys that were taking – normally would take – 45 second a minute shifts but when they took a shift in philly the shifts went to 15 to 20 seconds i mean they couldn't get off the ice so yeah it was, it was an intimidating building and i'd be yelling screaming at guys like hey they're not that tough anymore yeah. <laughs> but yeah it was definitely an in intimidating building to play in so and the philly <laughs> flu was a real thing the players would suddenly come down with the flu when they got into <laughs> philly oh yeah there was yeah there was yeah so i, I had a real bad injury in Hartford and uh I was out I'd been out for quite a while I got skewered on a net and uh but there was uh I got voted to the all-star team and it was my opportunity to play my first all-star game it was going to be in LA uh, but I wanted to try to get in at least one game before so the night I got hurt I was 190 pounds um and then so I told the coach I'm ready to play. Well, I was only 170 pounds. I mean, I was a weak noodle. I was I was no good. Uh, but they said, OK, so I flew into Philly with the team. And then from there, I was going to go to L.A. to play in the All-Star game. And um, so they said, look, we're just going to use you a little bit on the power play, maybe a few shifts, even strength. And we'll probably dress seven defensemen. And I said, OK, great. Well, three or four of the guys were so intimidated playing. I ended up playing 26 minutes that wow. night. And, and I was terrible. I was, I was, I was really bad for about another five to six months till I got totally healed. But that's a lot uh, of weight to lose. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, mean, I, I think I ended up, I lost like four and a half pints of blood. Whether well, it was, I couldn't get out of bed basically for a month. Yeah. Corey and I so, were talking about what happened with that injury. You went into the yeah, net, the way, right? Yeah, the way the old nets used to be designed, they had the post here, and then it came to a point mm -hmm. in the middle. Well, that I slid into that point. Well, that point went into me quite a bit. So, and then a bad part. I actually ended up being really lucky, and um, I mean, a lot, lot worse could have happened mm -hmm. other than uh, you know all the stitches and the infections and everything else. But 
in actuality, that that uh, that injury is probably what got me traded to the Flyers to begin with. So uh, because uh, you know, I I like I said, uh, I was on the second team All Star that year. It was only my second year ever playing defense. Uh, I was still trying to learn the position. Um, I think the night I got hurt, I was seventh or eighth in scoring in the league, and my career was starting to really take off. I had the injury, come back a year later, and like I'd be the first guy to admit I was I was a bad hockey player for a year just because I wasn't strong. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just couldn't play, and uh, they got disgruntled with me. They thought I was. Uh, being lazy, and uh, they thought I was a fat cat sitting on all the money I had. Well, it wasn't that much money. <laughs> so, uh, but then, yeah, so they they had interest in trading me. I had no trade, and I said, well, here's four teams. Send me to any one of these four teams. I'll go. Uh, and ended up uh, being the Flyers, So, which I, I'm uh, so thankful for. So um, uh, between playing for the team that uh, – yeah, I grew to love and plus just being like, like I said, I've been in this community since uh, 82 with the exception of having to leave for three, four years. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great place to be. So when did you transition yeah. from wing to D? Like what, when did that happen? Uh, the year that the leagues merged. So uh, I guess I was 79. So because I played the first three or four games of the year on left wing Um and then uh, actually we had a game, uh, we we're on the road trip and the last game was in Buffalo. So we, in the morning, uh, I skated on the left wing on my dad's line. Uh, and then I, we came in for the game and, and, in Hartford, they didn't tell you who was playing, who wasn't playing. It was a, it was a get. So <laughs> everybody had to prepare like they were playing that. I, even though you knew you weren't. Um, but so I go in and on the board, my name was written as one of the defensemen. So I don't know, it's like like I said, so it's around five thirty. And so I went in, I saw who's messing with the board. So I took the race. <laughs> I raised my name and I raised whoever was on my dad's left wing and I put my name back up on left wing and left the left the spot. Coach came in, he's yelling, Who's messing with the board? I said I said, I'm playing defense tonight. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, Wow. No, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, my first ship was against Gilbert Perot. And the, my partner uh, pinched in, then I had to slide over and cover. Well, here comes Gilbert Perot, uh, yeah. one-on-one, and I'm like, my heart's just beating <laughs> at the minute. And uh, thank God he lost the puck, and I had to ch- I was out of breath in 15 seconds. So that's, <laughs> that's how my career started as a defenseman. And uh, like I said, then I uh, about two years later, I had that bad injury. I had traded the Flyers a year later, and – and I've always credited uh, Eddie Van Imp because uh, Eddie used to come on the ice here when I was with the Flyers. And and I was uh, uh, being noted, I guess, for uh, as one of the candidates for the uh, for the best defense Norris trophy. And, and so Eddie said, well, what can I teach you? I said, Eddie, nobody's ever taught me a thing. I said, I, 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 well, back then I said they used to replay all the games on I think it was Prism. And yeah. I said, yeah, I said, after a game, I have a bite to eat, maybe a couple of beers. I go home and I, but I stay awake till one o'clock when they replay the games and I'd stay awake till, you know, and, and I knew there were certain plays that I didn't quite understand exactly what happened and I needed to visually see it. And like nowadays, everything's digitalized and you, you see replays like that. And, uh, uh, I mean, you see guys on the bench now looking at stuff, uh-huh. but I, I'd stay awake till two, three in the morning just so I could watch. 
And uh, and then part of that was I had I had great partners in uh, like Shell Samuelson was still there, Brad McCrimmon, uh, Glenn Cochran when I first got here. And when I go to practice, I said, look, here's what happened on this goal. And uh, and you can never fix anything by yourself when you're a defenseman. It always takes a two. So, you know, I'd tell them what goes on. Or, you know, they, Brad McCrimmon, I know, watched the, the games too. And uh, and we talked about it. And we figured out, well, how can we counteract that? And maybe it's playing against Gretzky or Lemieux or Trotche or some of the great, great players. And, and you had to come up with different methods to play against them because they didn't work against uh, everybody. And, um, uh, yeah, so it was a challenge. But uh, I always had great partners that were willing to put in the time and effort as well to try to get better. Yeah, I mean, in Philly, those years, we had such great players and teams. And you went to the finals the one year. That must have been a gut crusher, that that loss. Was it 87? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. so we lost, we lost in 85 in the finals. It was more of a learning experience. But, yeah, 87 was a uh, – it was a tough pill to swallow. I mean, Ron Hextall was so good that year. and um, But, yeah, we, we actually had the Oilers on the ropes. So, uh, I mean, we went up there for game five. They had us down three games to one, and everybody had us written off. And uh, they had the headlines that the parade's going to be on Monday and everything else. And the, <laughs> the team found a way. Uh, you know, we came in. They said, we're going to find – even if we lose in Philly, we're going to find a way to – we're going to rain on their parade. Uh, we won, and then, and I think for a lot of guys that played during that that short time frame, uh, I know for me, we won Game Six at home. JJ Daniel scored the big goal, and uh, that was probably as uh, as great a time as anyway to get to that final. And then, uh, unfortunately, the Oilers, yeah, they were champions. They played like champions. They played as good that day as any team I've ever seen play, and. It was just a wave. So, uh, you know, we, we almost got up by two in the first. Grant Fuhrer made a few big saves. Uh, but then they came at us in waves. And uh, I think the score ended up being three to one. It probably could have been worse. But Hexie was just phenomenal that game. Yeah, Chico says that those those times are part of the his favorite memories of playing that team and those guys. And, and that I know that's Corey. I think that was your favorite team right <laughs> oh <laughs> that was during my era yeah when i was yeah. like 14 15 16 was was the you know those years in 87 the the, the Tockets, the smiths the browns uh yourself craig berube um those yeah those were uh those are the pivotal days for me and that's what i always joke is uh, i was never a goalie because you know i loved rick Tockett, i loved the power forwards and my dad always jokes today is because, you know, I, I, I didn't pan out playing in the NHL, but it was a, you always should have been a goalie, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I didn't listen. So no, I a story you would love was uh, when I was a kid growing up in Detroit, we used to play a lot of games in Southern Ontario. Yeah. So uh, my mom, I had my brother and I up playing and playing a game somewhere near London or something. So on our drive back home from our game, uh, we're listening to the Red Wing broadcast, and the broadcaster was uh, Bruce Martin and Bud Lynch. And the Red Wings were playing the Flyers that night. And as we're driving, and 
and it drove me crazy because they kept saying, and Bernie Fabble makes a save. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, who is Bernie Fabble? <laughs> Bernie Prawn and Doug Favelle. Who is Bernie Fabble? <laughs> but it went on the whole night. So The I, whole I, night I never, they were saying that? The whole night, yeah. Oh I, I was like, I said, these two guys, yeah, they, they, they needed a better uh, typecast on that one. But, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. It was hilarious. Um, well, it's it's funny because I did um, – my dad, uh, when he coached uh, – he was the goalie coach in Buffalo with the Sabres, and I used to go over Sunday nights to the games. That was their, their home games. And I, um, Joe Cadillac always comes up on on our podcast. Joe Cadillac uh, was at the game in Buffalo at the Odd, and uh, they had the cage where they could you – know, all the players waited, or uh, the parents and the, uh, the wives and stuff waited. And um, Joe Cadillac brought me in the room, and that was um, – we always joke and like Joe Cadillac runs me in and is like, you guys are all getting out of the shower and everyone. <laughs> but I remember it's like, holy shit, there's Mark Cowan. I was like, I remember how in great shape you were. I was like, wow, he's, you know, what phenomenal shape. And my background is I'm, I'm a strength coach and I have a technology. I work with elite 14, 15, 16 year old hockey players going into major junior drafts. And I was very curious. I'm like, man, this guy is, you know, he's Jack. What did you have a routine back then? You mentioned, you know, going down to 175. It's a big difference when your game weight's 195. Um, I was just thinking, what was there, you know, was your built just like your dad or did you have to work for that? Or what was something behind your routines? No, I, I, I was born with good genetics, uh, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, my mom was a very strong woman as well. I, I think I have more of my mother's genes than my father's genes, actually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, my mom was very strong and powerful as well. Um, but no, I, we had uh, uh, probably Dave, uh, Dave Poulin, uh, Brad McCremen. These guys were yeah. fitness machines. I mean, they, they put tons of time in a gym and all that. I was never big into weights. Yep. Um, I did I did enough to stay toned. Um, my biggest thing was I I knew, especially under Mike Keenan, I was playing 32, 34 minutes a night. Um, so cardiovascular was extremely important to me. Uh, for anybody who knows me going back years ago, <laughs> Uh, I had my boat sitting on the uh, at the end of the dock, and right next to that, I had my stationary bike. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I would start off. Uh, you know, the season would end uh, hopefully like in May or June. Uh, the odd time you lost out earlier, but I would I would uh, work out maybe three days a week on my bike uh, for a couple weeks to get going. And by the end of June, I was doing four days a week. By the time you hit July, I was five days a week, and it was usually. Um, uh, two days, uh, a nice steady pace for maybe an hour. And, and I do, uh, three days of, uh, uh, of sprints. And, um, then by the time I hit August, I, I went up to six days a week and I would do probably an hour and 15 minutes. Now they're saying now that's probably why I got a bad back from all the biking I used to do, but it was the old bike uh, where you had the tension uh-huh. knob. And, my yeah. kids would get like, my kids would come off the boat and they'd get on the bike and they would they'd have two of them standing there they couldn't move the pedal I mean there was so much uh, I don't <laughs> know what the poundage was oh yeah it was like four hundred pound tension or whatever uh, my and, dad and had leg, that bike too <laughs> yeah and and your and your yeah I mean your legs your thighs were just massive um, yeah. and then a lot of guys used to go and skate and for two weeks whatever 
I would sit and I'd, I'd maybe go skate one day. Uh, and then it would take, and my, I tied my skates so loose. Actually, one time during a game back in the old, when you had the old tube skates, my skate actually, my foot came right out of my oh, skate. No. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was laced up. Uh, during a game? Take, uh, yeah, during a game. It was in Minnesota, yeah. <laughs> they thought I was hurting. They, they were wondering why I was laying there. So my foot came out of my skate. So, <laughs> so I just had to put it back on. But uh, um yeah, so like I, I would gear myself, and you know, especially on my my interval days, I would do. I was doing uh, a minute on and a minute off, minute on, minute off for about an hour and fifteen, hour and twenty minutes. Uh, so I was simulating a game, and even though I never played a minute long shift in a game, yeah. tried not to. Um, I could go out and play forty five second shift, come off, and not be tired. Uh, and to me, that's that's how you played the game. Yeah. And, and, and looking at, again, that's, you were ahead of your time. I noticed when you went home and watched video at night, not a lot of guys did that. They didn't have all the video stuff back then. And then um, just with the interval, interval training, I used to joke, my dad would train. He played lacrosse in the summer, but I remember when the season was starting, he would run from our cottage to my grandparents' house, which was probably five kilometers, but that was his training. He was, he'd run, run down to my grandparents, jump in the pool, that was it. I'm like, well, when in a game do you ever run five kilometers? And that's it. So the interval training was I train kids is you got to train interval training because kids go, oh, I got to get in shape. I'm going to run 10K. I go, okay, well, yeah. during the game, are you ever going to run 10K? No, I would sprint pole to pole, walk yeah. pole to pole, sprint, you know. So again, you were ahead of your time, you know, with, with, yeah. with training, just doing the interval training. Well, I think, uh, like, well, Pat Croce helped a lot. I, I know I did some biking and stuff when I played in Hartford, but I came here was it, the players, and, uh, the demands. It was, it was, uh, more intense. And so I, I gravitated to that pretty quick. And a lot of guys did stuff as a group. I like doing stuff on my own and everybody said, Oh, he doesn't work out. Didn't do this. And <laughs> like, cause I couldn't run. I mean, I used to try yeah. to run, but I used to get really bad tendonitis. Yeah. So my first camp, they said, I was one of the last guys and they said, well, he's not in shape. I said, well, let's go on a bike. Let's go skate. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. you know, let's have I'll, that. I'm ready to play. Like, believe yeah. me. Um, but yeah, the, um, my biggest thing was, uh, my, that I always, kept track of was uh, my recovery so uh, by the time i hit mid-august uh, i'm doing a, a 45 second or a minute long sprint uh, my heart rate's in the 180s 190s uh, but within a minute my heart rate was recovered into the uh, round right around 120 and then once i hit 120 within a minute i knew i was in good shape uh where like well, after we're done with this, I'm going to go out and have a run. I haven't been able to run for uh, two months because of uh, some family issues around here. But um, <laughs> but it is what it is. So I'm, I'm sure my heart rate is going to balloon right up, and, and uh, I'll, I'll be lucky to get in three miles. But uh, Well, you um, were lucky to train with Pat Croce because, I mean, come on, yeah. talk about innovative and amazing trainer. He was awesome. I haven't yeah, seen him well, in years. Yeah, about Pat is, yeah, he did all that, but what a, I, he just had a dynamic personality. Yeah. Anybody that saw them, met them, and uh, I actually only had one day ever. I came in, I said, Pat, how are you today? So I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm going, what? Uh -huh. what you? You're not doing great? <laughs> it's what always great. Come great? on. <laughs> so, and he did. I like, uh, like in 87, uh, when we went to the finals, the very first shift of the first game, uh, I got kneed in the thigh by, uh, by Mark Messier. 
uh, I missed my thigh pad, and I had a wicked Charlie horse. It was it was nasty. Uh, I shouldn't have finished the game, but Mike Keenan kept pushing me, and <laughs> by the end of the game, I couldn't move. And uh, we had two days in between games, and I was on crutches, and my my leg was in so much pain. And uh, every day, Pat Pat would meet with me four or five times a day. Uh, and they'd heat up my leg and then he'd have me lay down and they would just start bending your, bending your leg. And he mm-hmm. said, he said, I'm staying here until your, your heel touches your butt. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and believe me, he had me in tears and I flat out wanted to kill him. But, uh, <laughs> to this day, the only reason I was able to play game two in the rest of the series was because of Pat Croce. And, um, uh, yeah, he, uh, I, I remember well, I had a bad rotator cuff, and so I used to drive out to when he had his little place out in Broomall, and it'd be an hour there every day, an hour back, and you'd meet at six thirty in the morning, and so I'd, I'd be up at four thirty to go over there, and um, uh, so we'd be working out with Jimmy McCross and a couple of the guys, and Pat was on vacation, I think, for about ten days. He came back and the first day he had me, he said, okay, I, I can see you're having a lot of issues with your range of motion. He goes, we're going to take care of that right now. So he had two guys stand on my chest and he, he took my arm and he started to pronate this way. Yeah. And just when the ball would come out, well, he's got the two or three guys uh-huh. holding the ball down and he kept oh pushing. God. And you know, he had a really small establishment. There's maybe seven, eight people in there. I'm, I'm wishing they had earplugs that day. Yeah. The words coming out of my mouth. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I'm like, well, and then I, now I had to get in the car and I, I go, go back to Morristown and, uh, I'm in the shower. I come out, my wife looks at me, she goes, Oh my God, what happened to you? Well, my whole chest, shoulder, everything was solid black and blue. Oh. Well, what he did, he tore all the old adhesions that had healed improperly. And uh, then my my increased range of motion, I think the next year I might have had one of my best years ever point-wise. My shot got better, stronger, heavier, harder. Um, And, uh, yeah, so Pat always didn't make – wasn't your best friend on the odd day. But but all in all, he was wonderful. He helped me out with a lot of issues and uh, helped me to be a better player. Do you uh, ever see or talk to him? I know he has all his places down in Key West now. I don't know if he's down there all the time. I haven't seen him in so, so, so long. But Yeah, neither have I. I get the odd Christmas yeah. card from him. Uh, I know I uh, uh, I think when they uh, retired my jersey, I, I mentioned Pat. And so he sent me a sent me an email, said thanks for the shout out. And, and then uh, actually uh, – I think it was three years ago with the Red Wings, we had team meetings. We were down in Fort Lauderdale um, and uh, we ended up having one afternoon off and uh, a writer, you know, God, uh, my best goes out to Jay, Jay Greenberg. Anybody knows Jason's having serious health issues and not doing well, but uh, Jay was uh, preparing to write a book about Mike Keenan and he was down to Key West and I'd never been to Key West before. And he said, look, if you get a chance, why don't you come down and visit Mike? I go, oh, are you sure? <laughs> he said, yeah, Mike would love to see us. So I said, yeah. So, uh, so I had one afternoon. I called Jace. Yeah, come on down. So we'll have dinner and stuff. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I met Mike, shook his hand. I said, look, you treated me like crap for four years. You owe me dinner tonight. So a uh, little icebreaker. But, yeah, no, I was like, uh, you know, Mike, Mike did a lot to help my career as well. But, uh, yeah, so we went out. We had a good night. But our last stop, I said, look, I got to go by Pat Croce's place. So uh, we're right downtown Key West, uh, went into the bar. And so they, uh, Mike called over the manager. And I said, well, you 
text Pat right now. I'll tell him I'm in here. Where's, where's his sorry button. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but no, that's the closest I've come to seeing Pat for a while. But uh, like I said, we, we spent a lot of time together. We spent a few summers together when I needed to have uh, certain health things looked after. And uh, yeah, I, I, I miss seeing Pat. He's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was always, like you said, it was always, you're great. Like for him to say good must have been like, wait, oh, what's going on me. here? Like, well, what happened? What's wrong? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I thought there was a death in the family or something, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that was, that's what was great. He was so positive, so upbeat yeah. and, uh, and a go-getter. Yeah. So uh, it was, uh, he energized the room when he came in. For sure. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the opposite <laughs> Uh, having Keenan as your coach for uh, those years, I'm sure I've, you know, we've all heard the stories and know kind of what he was like. What was your you experience? Know, you, know, you know, some of the stories. <laughs> <laughs> some, we know a few of the stories. Yeah. yeah. No, Mike, Mike, uh, Mike came in and Mike pushed people. Um, uh, prime example. So we, you know, we have two days of training camp. You, you play a game on your third day. Uh, I think we played in Hershey or somewhere. We bust back after, and, uh, and they always had a protocol that if you had any kind of nagging injury or something happened, uh, we want to hear about it. And then they, would, uh, you know, the trainer Sudsy'd come in and they would assess uh, whether you should practice or whether you should, you know, rehab for a day or two because you're better off to miss two days rather than two weeks. Um, so uh, my groin was bothering me from the day before. Ilka Sinicello sat in the very first chair when you came in the room, um, and there was one or two other guys. And Sudsy takes a list. He goes in to see the coach. <laughs> Next thing, about a minute later, this door comes flying oh, open. <laughs> <laughs> he and I was on the other side of the room. Thank God, I had two ice bags, one on my groin, one on my back. <laughs> he laid in the Elka Sinicello so bad. I'm like, oh God. So I just quit, took the ice bags off, snuck out the back room, went into the back entrance to the locker room. I said, put my stuff on. Suds, he said, look, you can't practice. I says, I ain't going through that. I forget. So uh, that was that was our introduction to Mike Keenan. And oh. Mike Mike was paid to win. I I, I did feel bad for uh, some of the younger guys. I mean, if you're, you know, poor Peter Zezel and some of these guys that are, uh, uh, when you're 19, 20 years of age, you come in and this is your introduction right. to pro hockey. It's, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it's, it was quite the extreme. So, and even for guys that were, you know, maybe close to 30, like I was, it was still, uh, I'd never experienced anything like that. And, uh, Chico said he was really hard on Scott Mellonby. Oh, poor, poor Scott. Yeah. Scotty was one of the guys too. So yeah, yeah. He, he had a few guys. Yeah. He had, he had Scotty one time. He kicked us off the ice in the forum in Montreal. Our practice was bad. Uh, he had, he had two water bottles set up on the blue line and told everybody to get off the ice set for Mellonby. And he just had him going back and forth between the red lines and the blue lines and and Scott would come back and, and, uh, and they were doing one-on-one -on -one work intervals and, we come out of the locker room after 20, 25 minutes and he's still doing oh, the skating. And he'd let him have a drink of water. Then Mellonby actually kind of fainted, passed right out. And, and he's wow. screaming at him to get back up. He got back up and he kept doing it. And we're all like, and this is like four o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. So we'd flown in that day. And 
so the next day, uh, don't have a morning skate. We just have the game. Well, Scott Mellonby scores two goals and gets an assist. We win four to two or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I, I walked up to Mellonby. I said, you are the dumbest human being I know. <laughs> I said, yeah. He's no, going to no, have you doing that every day. <laughs> he's got to do that every day. So, uh, How old was Mike, Scott then? He was young. Oh, God. He's he was young, too. Oh, really young. Yeah. He was only 21, 22, right. like whatever. I, I think, uh, I know he was young and now here's a guy fresh out of college. Like I guarantee he didn't hit this, you know, playing college hockey. Right. So, um, but Mike, Mike pushed people. I, he pushed me to the max. So, I mean, he pushed everybody. Uh, the only guys that he treated different were your goalies. Uh, so, you know, he had, he had Pelly, uh, you know, he had Hexy. Uh, they were different from everybody else. Everybody else got, like I said, he brought the team together because he treated everybody like crap. Right. And so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it made you guys bond. It's true. Yeah, that definitely yeah, makes sense. Right yeah. Away, yeah. yeah. So, it's a good tactic. Yeah. He, he, what's, uh, his, 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 I said, yeah, life's a, life's a bitch. Then you get married, then you die. And I'm going, wow. What a, <laughs> what a, what a model. That sounds great. <laughs> what, a, what a great model this is. Yeah. I know. So, uh, I said, I feel bad for you, but, yeah. No, nah, but Mike, I, uh, I think Mike in my Hall of Fame speech, Mike was, uh, uh, I asked for more ice time. I wanted to be pushed. I wanted to have a bigger role than I, I had had prior to him coming here. Uh, we met at Kaminsky's Ale House in the summer. He came and met all the players and, and uh, you know, I expressed my concerns. He told me what his expectations were of me and um, you know, he said, your job's to be ready. And I said, I'll be ready. I'm not worried about that. And, uh, the very first game we played was in Hershey and I played 16 and a half minutes of the first exhibition game. And I, but I felt great. I like, like every once in a while I'd have a game where I could have probably skated 10 hours and never been tired and not have a bead of sweat come out of me. Just, I think just cause my legs were so strong and, um, you know, and then, but I knew, and I had, I think I had three or four assists that game. Uh, we're up like three, four, nothing. And I was just dominating. I said, this is date, like day three of training camp. Uh, so I knew that was my test. I, I asked for certain things and he wouldn't let me off the ice. So that was his way of testing, mm-hmm. I guess, my fortitude. And, uh, so within that 20 minutes, I think our bond was kind of set from there. He, he knew where I was and, and, uh, you know, I kind of understood where he was and, but yeah, hey, believe me, he, but the next day, <laughs> He was probably harder on me than anybody else. Um, you know, he it, it wasn't. He wouldn't let you be satisfied with with what you had done, and he wanted more. So, uh, and he did that. And I know he alienated some players, and uh, you know, some of the management and all. But uh, basically, for me, um, I wanted a bigger role. He gave me the role. I I was trying to do my best to help this team win, and he gave me that opportunity. You know, I guess that kind of coaching is more of like a short term, like you can't have a coach like that long term. Eventually, you're going to burn out. Yeah, you know, I, I think by the end of year or two, you started to see some guys start to turn another cheek to it. And it's like putting in earplugs. Yeah. Um, guys like me, well, I mean, we came into uh, so his fourth year. Um, he came to me before we're, I think we were playing Edmonton. Yeah. So it would have been the year after we went to the finals finals a second time. Um, so right at the end of warm up, or just for a warm up, he said, look, 
just before the game starts, he goes, uh, or, or no, after the first period, he says, I'm going to really lay into you. And I'm going, why? Like the game hadn't even started yet. <laughs> he said, well, I got, a, I got a couple new guys. And he says, I want them to see what it's going to be like playing for me. And I said, well, what do I have to do with that? He <laughs> says, well, they're going to go, wow, there's Mark Howell over there. And, oh, my God, look how he's getting treated like, oh, crap. So <laughs> sure enough, we go out we're play and we're playing the Oilers. And I play three shifts, maybe four, and he doesn't play me. So now I'm, I'm irate to begin with because I'm on the bench for no good reason. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I'm playing good. And uh, so at the end of the first period, so now, you know, but I, so I'm I'm wound up big time. It's, I, and Mike comes in and he starts laying into me, and I and I know it's coming. I don't know why, but I know it's coming. But he gets so deep into your kitchen that he walks out of the room, and I'm sure he's dying laughing when he goes in the other room. But they had just redone all the partitions in in the in the bathroom and everything else. Well, believe I just destroyed everything. I, I thank God I never got the bill for it. Oh, but God. like you just you just want to kill. <laughs> so, but that's what was his that, reasoning for benching you for those. Nah, just, well, probably because he knew it would get me fired up. Right, yeah. right. And he knew that as soon as he started to get into my kitchen after the period, that it would just, my reaction would be a hundred times worse, yeah. which it was. And he wanted these other players to see what he wanted them to see. Wow. Uh, so for him, there was a method to his madness. <laughs> um, you know, but I think, uh, you know, by the end, I think uh, it got down to, you know, I, I think you had your your leaders and, and your uh, Brad Marshes and your Dave Poulins, uh, I think myself and McCrimmon. And and I was always brought up that no matter how wrong your coach is, he's right. Um, but I think by then you could see all the wheels were falling off. And, you know, we're, we're trying to keep it together, keep it together. And then I remember uh, he got after Dave Poulin one day and, uh, you know, and then he lost Dave that day. So, I mean, it was something he did during practice and, and what it does. And you have everybody around that's witnessing it. I, I, he, he did a stunt to Ronnie Sutter during the game. And, 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 you know, when you take these guys that are your core players or quality people, and you start seeing that the coach has taken their heart out of them a little bit, uh, it affects everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. so, but, but as players, like, and as a group, you're trying to keep it together, but, but I think, and that's kind of what was happening the last year. And then uh, even the year before we won game seven, uh, we lose to Edmonton and I think five or six of the players right after that game went up mass to get traded because um, um, they just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And so that's, that's when the wheels started to come off and, uh, but Mike, Mike got paid to win. Um, yeah. That's his, that's his theory. And maybe, uh, you know, whether he regrets it nowadays or not, I don't know. Uh, but he got paid to win. And uh, for the most part, he did that. And I'm sure with their group being so tight and then he's, you know, lashing out on one of the guys, it makes it even harder. And I mean, did the whole, obviously, experience with Pelly and him passing and all that, like, bring you guys even closer? Yeah, I think so. I like to say that. Anybody you talk to f who played on those teams, I mean, those years were uh, some of the greatest years they had, and it had to do because uh, because of the closeness of the team. And 
uh, and every guy on the team, they were all good people. Mm -hmm. Uh, you had, you had different personalities and, um, uh, but I think part of the flyer philosophy for years, uh, part of what I loved about being a flyer was it was never about an individual. It was always about team success. And whenever the team did well, um, you know, that's what it was all about. And for every single person on that team, that's what it was all about. You were there for each other. And, uh, you know, it might be Dave Brown having a fight, might be, you know, Daryl Stanley kicking in a goal once in a while, might be Lindsey Carson setting a screen, or Ronnie Sutter winning the big faceoff, Dave Poulin scored shorthanded, whatever. Everybody on that team, uh, the Murray Cravens, the Tockets, the Smith, the Zezels, uh, and they all chipped in. Every single guy at some point in time chipped in, and um, you know, and they had each other's back. And, and I think that's why the guys uh, remember those years so fondly. Just hearing all those names is bringing back all the memories. It was just such a fun team to watch. And my dad was goalie coach while you were there for a while, a little while, right? Yeah, he was. So, but the neatest thing for me when we played the uh, we played the uh, alumni uh, winter classic mm -hmm. uh, outdoors. And, uh, your dad donned the pads one more time. Yeah. And, Actually, the neatest thing for me in that whole game, I, I, well, the whole atmosphere, I'm not sure whether you're there or not, but the yeah. entire atmosphere was just it was awesome. Amazing. And, uh, but to hear the cheer for, your, uh, for, for Bernie when they came out, but for me, the biggest thing, because I'd played on the same team or against everybody in that room. The only guy I hadn't played with was, uh, was your dad. So nice. I, uh, I said, this is cool. I said, I'm, I'm actually sitting in the same room with Bernie Perron. So, uh, <laughs> and, and I, and you know, I, and actually ironically, the two years that the Flyers won the Stanley cup, uh, back in the seventies are the same two years that when I was playing in Houston, we won the cup in the WHA, those exact same two oh, wow. years. So, so, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, it was a, the first and only chance I had to uh, be on the ice with your dad. And, uh, but I'm one of the, like I said, I, it makes you feel like a young kid again. You're, uh, you're look, uh, you know, I got a chance to play with Bobby Hall I was on the line with Gordy Howe, play with Davey Keon. I mean, some of the greats of the game, of the, of the game. And, and I know what your dad, what, uh, Bernie Perron uh, or Bernie and, uh, Billy Barber and, and Bob, Bobby Clark meant to, um, meant to this city uh and for me being a it makes you like feel young again and yeah. to be in a locker room and yeah i i distinctly remember i said oh this is cool i'm in the same room with bernie perron like this is awesome. <laughs> yeah that was because yeah. i was so little when he played i don't really remember but that night was just and then when the bernie 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 chant started i teared up and the chills because I never really got to experience it that I remembered because I was so little. So that was a super special night. It was so much fun. And then Ron Duguay, I always say, was so classy with, you know, he got the breakaway and he shot the puck right in my dad's bread basket, like, you know, and just, I just, it was a great way for him to quote unquote go out as far as playing. Well, he still, he still made a sliding save he on another did. play. <laughs> well, he kind of ran into me. The guy beat me. And got to, uh, I'm like, and I said, Bernie, what are you doing? Get up, get up. What are you doing? <laughs> I know. I just you didn't want him to get hurt. So uh, I know. I was worried. Nah. Like, oh, my God, I hope he can get back up. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, but, hey, but as much as you enjoyed it and stuff for your reasons, I, I think everybody else on the bench, we enjoyed it just as much. And, yeah, like I said, I because I always heard the story that uh, Mark Messier went in and uh, told all the guys, hey, no matter what, nobody yeah. scores a goal on Bernie Perrant. And 
Uh, and how classy you know, is that? Respect. Yeah, and that's and, you know. yeah, Mark Messier got a lot of class. And but then the, on the side note of that whole thing, so I decided, I, well, I wanted to have a few drinks. I wasn't going to drink and drive, so I I got a hotel, and a whole bunch of the Rangers were staying downtown, and so I ended up being out with the Rangers that night. What well, ended up because Mike Keenan, <laughs> Mike Keenan coached their team. Well, <laughs> got to the third period, Mike wanted to win, so Mike benched half their players, and, <laughs> so, and they were so, they were furious. They were so upset. <laughs> so and I said, well, some things never, never change. Never change. But, I can't yeah, believe you did. All, yeah, the, the whole bunch of they didn't play the last ten minutes. No. No. Yeah, some things never change. My God. <laughs> no, Mike did that. We we had the All Star game in uh, Hartford uh, years ago, and uh, I think our fourth line was Timmy Kerr, uh, Michelle Goulet, and I think Mario Lemieux was the centerman. It might have been Mario's second year or something. Well, uh, the game was tied, and uh, coming down the stretch, and Glenn Sather was coaching the other team. Well, Glenn started shifting lines around, so Mike started doing it. Well, then Mike Mike benched that line of Goulet. <laughs> They're all oh fifty goals. They're one of the greatest players that ever played the game, <laughs> and he just kept playing Trotche's line all the time. And uh, so I'm, I'm sitting. So he was benching guys in an All Star game. Then the other twist on that was there's about a minute and a half to go. Uh, Brian Trotche was head of the uh, the players Associ- or the uh, yeah the players association. And uh, they announced on the PA that if the game goes to overtime, we're going to play a three-on-three overtime. And and then if they don't have that, they'll have a shootout. And Brian Trotsky says, <laughs> like, no, they're not. Like, nobody <laughs> nobody okayed that with the Player Association, so it's not <laughs> happening. Like, we're, if we die, we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> and right in between us was Mike Bossy. And Mike Bossy <laughs> says, oh, don't worry about it. He said, Let, I guess I'll go and score a goal next shift. Well, Mike Bossy scored with like a minute and a half to go. I said, my God, is a game that easy for you? Yeah. So, uh, Here, I'll take care yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what year was that? Uh, that would have been around 85, somewhere in that. Okay. Yeah. Whenever it was in the heart, uh, whenever it was in Hartford, yeah. So it was kind of, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of all the little things that go on between uh, periods and the so I mean I got I got run really hard by uh, I think it was Kevin Deneen, uh that game and uh, uh, yeah I'm pretty sure it was Kevin was one of the guys because my partner that day was Larry Robinson who I what a great great player mm-hmm. person he is too so uh, Larry gave me the puck and I was waiting for a guy to get open and so I waited too long and so I took and, and guys normally they just put their stick out there in the All Star games and they skate by and uh, but. Uh, or no, actually, it was when I think it was Wendell Clark. Well, Wendell Clark finished his check and finished it pretty hard, knocked me on my rear. And we got the bench. Larry Robinson was dying laughing. So, uh, but all the all the time, and I remember like earlier that day, they were uh, they were doing a team team photo. So we're all together, and each team had an honorary captain. Well, my dad was the honorary captain of our team, and then my youngest son. Uh, or my oldest son, Travis, I think was about seven years old at the time. And uh, so the honorary captain got to pick somebody to skate with him. So he picked his grandson. Aww. And uh, so, but we're ready to do the team picture. Dad's in the picture and uh, I'm in the picture of the whole team. And Larry Robbins says, whoa, time out. He says, Travis, get over here. And uh, he made uh, he made him put my son in the picture, so we'd have the three generations. Oh, that's awesome. that, that that kind of explains uh, what kind of guy Larry Robinson yeah. is. 
I mean, I would have never thought of that. I wouldn't have, uh, especially would have never asked to be, uh, have some special like that for me, but, uh, Larry stood up and, uh, yeah, it was pretty classy. And how is Travis? Oh, he's good guys. I think he's 43 now. So, uh, and you have a granddaughter, right? Well, he's got three, three three little girls running around. And then uh, my daughter, Asia's got two girls running around and my son, Nolan, who still lives in Jersey, they got a boy and a girl. So I finally got a boy, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, twice during the pandemic, I drove up to Detroit and we spent a week with them and, um, you know, we, we stayed isolated within ourselves, but, uh, yeah, th- thank God for uh, computers and Zoom calls really? and, and FaceTime. Yeah, I mean, I like it. Uh, it's made it all, I guess, uh, okay. My heart probably because I haven't seen my gra- granddaughters out in Colorado now for almost two years. Oh God! So um, um, hoping, uh, hoping pretty soon. I think with things getting a lot better, I'm hoping to be able to spend time with them probably in the next few months. Yeah, it looks like this summer. Hopefully, do they um, come visit you guys down in LBI? Typically, take away COVID and all of that. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Because normally they come down, they spend a week. I got a, a shore home that's about two blocks away from where my boat is, and it's about a block from the beach. So, uh, yeah, they get down and. Uh, they made me take me to the donut shop every morning, run around, and, and by, by eight o'clock at night, I said, "Oh God, your grandpa's got to go to bed. I'm worn out." So, uh, uh, so, but then, yeah, it's good. And I got a couple boats, so I've, I've, the one thing I've done with all my grandkids, uh, I've taken them all to their very first hockey game, and I've had them all out in the bay clamming. Oh, so uh, I, I usually start at about two years of age. I said, look, it's time to go. And he, even my youngest grandson, Brody, I think he was out there. He's just under a year old. Uh, he was in a float and, and the waves were going and eelgrass is flying around. And uh, <laughs> so his mother went down to get a clam and she got up and she, he's got eelgrass all over his face. He's trying <laughs> to eat eelgrass. <laughs> and, uh, I said, yeah, I'm breaking him in early. So, uh, yeah, they're, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been blessed and, uh, uh, yeah, you just, you wish you had more time with them. Yeah. And they're the special moments they'll have forever. I know my kids, the time with my dad down at the Marina on the docks fishing and out on the boat and all those shore days are their favorite memories with him. So they'll cherish that forever. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, you get Well, I know, I know how much your dad just loves boating and fishing and and it's like you were talking about that 900 pound marlin. I, well, I think it was 910 or 908 or whatever it weighed, but he kept telling me it was a thousand pounds. Well, because they dehydrate. And I know, yeah. I know that to they be a dehydrate. fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I fished tournaments long enough that if you caught a good fish, I got a big insulator bag. And yeah. as soon as that fish is in the boat, you pack them in the bag, you uh-huh. pack it with ice. And, uh, and well, the fish you know, was it, hanging off this, like it was so big. It was like off the, the side. Platform, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then yeah, he says I, the nose, like, what, what do you call it? The, of yeah, the, the, bill. the bill. Yeah, it yeah. was like touching the ground, so it wasn't the true weight. So it was definitely yeah, more. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a true fisherman for sure. Yeah. So, uh, but no, nah, it's just like I said. Uh, I, I know after I quit playing, I mean, one of the things that I enjoyed was uh, I, I I went into a couple of tournaments every year, um, and it's a, it was a competition. You're going probably the best thing I that I like most about fishing is 
every day that you start the boat and you you start running out, the thought in your head is today's the day. Right. And, and yeah. you're, you're going to, you know, it's like going, teeing it up on the golf course. Today's yeah. the day. So, yeah. um, so you, uh, and a lot of times it wasn't, but, uh, but you look forward to it. It's, uh, um, it, yeah, it's, I've been fortunate enough to be able to get out and, and do a lot of fishing off the coast, caught a lot of fish. And, um, but, what it does, it provides you the opportunity. I've made some great, great friends, uh, really good people. They've been part of my fishing crew, and uh, we've been neighbors down at the shore for years, and, and they're, they're, uh, they're, they're my best friends. Yeah, like growing up, my dad's closest friends were always his, the marine fishing buddies and all of that. But you started with your dad, right? Like I think um, Chico said you, your dad used to go with Johnny Bauer on fishing yeah. trips. Did you yeah, and up, did you join in, them? Up in Saskatchewan, up in uh, oh god, where was it? In uh, oh, I forget the town, but yeah, we get up and you know, fish with Johnny Bauer, and uh, I get my mom took photos going back way in the fifties and sixties, and I got thousands of photos uh, that she had taken of of dad on many fishing trips down in Florida uh, with people there. I like I said when dad went with Eatons, we they'd take us into private uh, trout ponds dad's had us to ecuador panama uh one christmas i you know i bought him tickets to get him down to the virgin islands to go fishing um uh fished alaska with them uh, and what it is and yeah i mean it's it's the fishing but it, what it is it's the opportunity that provides the uh you the chance for the quality time and uh the the big fish and everything else are a byproduct of it. But yeah, so many of my wonderful memories of my father were, and it's amazing. It's like, and we played hockey on the same team for seven years. He was my centerman and right winger, but all my great memories are, you know, from being on the golf course or uh, being on a boat or, or uh, just being with him doing everyday uh, life things, uh, which, I, you know, just meant so much more than, uh, you know, what you did on the ice together. Yeah, for sure. I know Corey loves to fish too, and him and oh, his pretty, son came yeah. down here a couple years ago, and so it's it's a fun bonding thing. I mean, I grew up with him yeah. my whole life. We grew up in the marinas on the boats and fishing, and um, we, it was funny. We had Ray Sherrill on, and we joked about how when um, he, his dad, Fred, my dad took them out fishing, and Fred got seasick. And my dad was like, uh, remember all those suicides you made me do? He's like, screw you, we're not turning back. He's like, you're stuck out here. <laughs> it's oh, paybacks, yeah. but. Hey, once you got out there, I had people say, please turn around. I said, yeah, we'll be home in a while or something. Right. So, well, they said, like, they said, I'm so far from land. I said, no, nah. I said, I'll just tie my anchor to you. I said, you're only 300 feet from land. So yeah. <laughs> you won't like the direction, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, but it was uh, yeah, no. Fish, uh, fishing's been a, a big part of our our, our lives for years, and uh, like Dad took Marty and I. Well, I I got pictures from when I was like four years old, five years old, walleye fishing up in the small lakes of Ontario, and uh, up to my first marlin I caught when I was down in Ecuador when I was thirteen. Wow, and, uh, how big you know, was like, that one? Uh, three twenty eight. So wow. it was, uh, uh, but that's it's, not it's easy only, to reel in. Nah, but it was, it was the only, it was the only black marlin I ever caught. So, uh, I've caught swordfish oh, before. Cool. I caught white stripe, 
blue. Uh, and then to com uh, complete the Grand Slam, I needed to catch the Black Marlin. And actually, the Black Marlin was the first one I caught. So, wow. uh, uh, and I was the only one I ever killed. All the other ones were catch and release. So, um, uh, but they, oh, that's just what they did down there. And yeah. I know I, I fished Cabo San, San Lucas for so many years. And uh, you know, like, it, like I tried to get my kids interested in it, but they all got seasick too. Right. So, <laughs> uh, so I said that kind of, kind of, and I used to get seasick uh, really bad till I was eh, maybe about 14, 15. Then I grew out of it. Yeah. So, uh, and I, and I've been out there sure as your dad, I, there's some days where they've been every bit of maybe eight to 10 feet and, uh, it wasn't dangerous, but you, you know, you had to be, you had to be knowledgeable. You had to, uh, you know, know what's going on. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's so great today with, uh, everything you can get off the internet and the satellites, right. you, you kind of know what you're going. I, I did a trip four years ago. I was, I was 98 and a half nautical miles offshore. So wow. I don't know, it's like 110 statute miles, whatever. And, uh, and it was flatter than a pancake. Um, uh, so, and then about six o'clock in the morning, we had, uh, I think five really nice tuna in the boat. And I told my brother and everybody, I go, oh, lines up, we're heading in. They're going like, why? What do you like the fish are here? I go, hey, we got five fish. A couple of them are about 160 pounds. I said, we have more than enough fish. And I said, the bad weather is supposed to kick in around four. So I said, in case I have an engine problem, something, I said, I'm not getting well. The, yeah, the wind blew up to about 40, 50 mile an hour wow. that, that later that day. And uh, it got nasty. And I was really glad because my, line, my lines were tied up and, uh, I said, any day you get you get in from seeing you're tied up, it's, it was a good day of fishing. Right. Yeah. Well, my dad, awesome. they because my dad, would, my brother really loved it, too. He was like his first mate. But he had, he always had a Viking or had her, for a few years, he had a lures, which he swears he would never, ever get again. Because they had a scare where they went out and it was beautiful. Um, and they were tossed. They all thought that they were gone. They were saying Hail Marys. They had the life vests on the boats, like every, all the drawers were coming out. <laughs> they, um, they got tossed around. They almost, um, just rode up on the, on the beach and just, you know, beach, like it was terrifying. <laughs> they said the like, oh, worst yeah, experience. Oh, yeah. and ever yeah. since then, he'll never, if, he, if there's even just a little chance of a storm, he, he won't go out. It's like, that was yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, well, year, years ago, if you ever listen to a forecast, they always said the seas are two to four. And the problem was it was a two to four inches, two to four feet, or two to four stories. You right. just never knew. Right. Uh, but like I said, nowadays, if you get caught out in bad weather, it's either a mechanical problem or you uh, you just weren't knowledgeable. Enough. Right. Shark fishing's fun. So they, uh, yeah. I know down in, uh, when I fished down in the Virgin Islands, uh, every once in a while you'd catch a marlin and uh, as you bring the marlin, I mean, the sharks follow it right to the boat. Wow. So yeah. I remember why I, I got Brad McCrimmon with me one time, and we're both holding on to the bill of this about 400, 450 pound blue marlin. And you're racing, you're racing the boat along, and you're trying to get some, uh, some oxygen into the, uh, into the gills of the fish. Um, but you can only hold on so long. Well, when the boat would speed up, uh, then the sharks would speed up when the boat slowed down because your arms were tired. Then the sharks would slowly drift back, and uh, and then but once that marlin got some life in it, you had to let it go, otherwise right. you're getting hurt. <laughs> and yeah, well, but um, it's nature. So I mean, the sharks the sharks would sense when the marlin was in trouble and mm -hmm. couldn't defend itself. Yeah, they they'd get it every time. Was he a big fisherman too, Brad McCrimmon? 
Uh, not a lot, but a little bit. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, I, uh, Brad and I, so we were partners for years. We, you know, he was, he was my best friend from hockey, no doubt about it. Um, uh, we did some vacations together. Um, uh, yeah, we, dra- I, I drag him out fishing the odd time. I don't know if he loved it, but, <laughs> uh, but he, but he enjoyed it. He, he, uh, he, he embraced everything, uh, with open arms and, uh, like I said, it was just one of the many things we were able to share together before he, uh, before he passed away in that plane crash. Yeah, it was devastating. It's a shame, like, uh, players from that team, we have Pelly, Brad, uh, Peter, you know, a lot of just devastating things happened to, you know, players from that team. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and I, and I think the whole Flyers organization, I mean, from – uh, you know, I, lo- I know they lost to the one player the boating accident years ago. You, you know, just different things happen yeah. at different times. And, um, you know, and that's, that's, those are the, the events that turn, uh, uh, yeah, the thing that probably hit me the hardest was, uh, when Timmy Kerr's wife, Kathy died, yeah. uh, gave him birth. So we were, we were in Pittsburgh and it just, boy, it, uh, it takes hockey, it puts it on a back burner and, uh, you know, lets you know what's really important in life. And, um, you know, then you, you eventually get back into that zone, but it is amazing. I, I know when, when Pelly died where uh, you're so close, you see the guy every day. And, um, uh, but the, uh, and even like when, when Kathy passed away, the one calming area I think for everybody is because it's on your mind, you think about it, but once you got on the ice, it was kind of like a little sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got in that little environment with your friends, you're, you're in your own little atmosphere and, and it kind of separated you from, uh, you know, from other things that were going on in life. Yeah. Fortunate you uh, had that. Cause a lot of people don't have that community when they lose somebody special to them. So, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Pelly's loss was, uh, that was a big loss for my dad. But, um, but yeah, well, they, had, they had to be close from working together all yeah. that time. So, yeah. yeah. So, and it, it is amazing. I'm, I don't know if you've looked at pictures of Pelly and look look at pictures of your dad. I and mean, you stick them side by side. You can't tell them apart. Yeah. They're identical. So, uh, yeah. I, 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 I felt bad for Pelly because your dad trained him to look just like him. So <laughs> <laughs> Here, uh, try this mask on. Yeah. Try this glove uh, on. Here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it seemed yeah. to work so, for Pelly. <laughs> yeah, no, we're good. So, yeah. but uh, I, 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 I've had a great relationship with your dad as well. So, uh, I mean, from the time he was there and, uh, like I said, I just, whenever we have an alumni event or whatever, it's always fun to run into, run into them. And like I said, we're, we're always telling fishing stories. I know, uh, like we've done a few alumni camps we did in Atlantic city for years. And, uh, you know, I know your dad's boat was getting redone and repowered and mm-hmm. all that. And my boat just got repowered. So, uh, yeah, we're always talking boat and fishing yeah. stories. Well, I, um, before we go, I just, do you have any, did you know Doug Favell at all? Did you ha- ever meet him at any alumni events or anything? Not, no, no, I didn't. So, uh, I think, I think I might, I think I might've met Doug, uh, maybe once or twice at a couple alumni events. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And actually in the last couple of years, like it's been a little harder for me to get to, but, uh, like I said, I know they have the big, uh, golfing, uh, weekend coming up pretty soon. Um, and they're also Brad Marsh, uh, got the alumni playing, uh, against, uh, the wounded warriors. I know right. they've been trying to get me out for years. And, uh, 
bleh, I got rid of all my equipment. I've done all this and that. <laughs> I've earned 66 in a week or two. And um, so, but, uh, and I always told Brad I would try. So uh, I made the commitment. I'm going to try to go out and uh, have fun. But uh, I've learned over the years. I, I know like when we played the outdoor game, I wanted to, because uh, my daughter was, was in labor at the time and uh, with my expected first grandchild she didn't give birth till a couple days later but uh but i said yeah as i was going to the game i said yeah, i'm going to score a goal for my granddaughter so um i pushed really hard thank god i i scored a goal uh, but i paid for it for two months <laughs> yeah. so like physically like my body just can't handle it my yeah. back really yeah. speaks back to me so uh but now i go and have fun and 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 you realize too that like these guys you're playing against, uh, they're not there to be embarrassed. They're there to have fun. So right. to me, uh, it makes more sense for me to let a guy go around me, go in and score a goal, or at least have a great chance, and uh, they can go home and say, "Hey, I, I beat Mark How one on one," or right. uh, you know, I scored a goal on somebody. And um, so, and like in this case, uh, you know, it's a lot of times it's for charity events, people that have uh, donated time, money. Uh, and this event is, uh, you know, it's going to be against people that uh, have fought for our country, fought for uh, for us to have our freedom. And uh, uh, so that's, like I said, it's it's important. I know Brad, I think Brad's done a wonderful job with the alumni, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's one way to try to give back, to say thank you to people for uh, for all that they've done for us. Yeah. And the Flyers seem to be very good at that. And we appreciate you giving back by coming on here and sharing all these Great stories yeah. with um, with us today. We really yeah. appreciate it. No, I'm glad so. Uh, yeah, continued success, and uh, uh, you know, I, I hope it goes well. And it's yeah, it's yeah. fun to talk to you guys. And like I said, I, I always love telling talking fishing stories about your dad. Right. So, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll have a few more coming up when I see him in a few weeks. I'm sure you guys will um, probably talk for hours about it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, the fish is probably up to 1,100 pounds by now. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mark, I did want to ask you, are you still, um, are you with Detroit still? Are you uh, director of scouting and still still with them? Uh, Yeah, I'm still with the Red Wings. So, uh, yeah, so I I went there in 92, played played three years. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a great organization as well. So, uh, I mean, from, uh, you know, Ed Snyder set the standards here just as uh, Mike and Marion Illich have done in Detroit. Yeah. Um, and those lessons got passed down to Bobby Clark, uh, to guys like Steve Eisman now in charge. Um, and those, so those, those people, they maintain the traditions, uh, the, uh, the expectations of, uh, of what used to be and, uh, through, you know, great leaders and, uh, so, uh, and I'm fortunate. So I, since 1982, uh, I've been either with the Flyers or the Red Wings and yeah. two of the great, greatest organization in sports. I've, I've been very blessed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was curious about, cause I have, um, like I said, I've been training elite hockey players here in Ontario and I had a kid, um, this was his NHL draft year. He was a third round pick of the London Knights. This would have been, or yeah, this would have been his first year, but because there was no hockey this year, um, he didn't get to play his first year. Now he's he's eligible for the NHL draft, but he hasn't played a game. Has has it really affected you know kind of the scouting process 
with with uh, with the draft this year. It was just something that because I work with these kids and I'm you know I have two kids going down to play in Hershey this year because I'm just scared there isn't going to be hockey again. Uh, they're they're 16 and 17. It's kind of pivotal years for these kids to miss out. Um, just thinking like was scouting a bit different this year. Did Canadian kids um, did they have a chance to get really looked at? I, I, that was just something I was very curious about with with yeah. I only deal with the pro side of it. So everything I'm dealing is with, they, with all the programs and, uh, and systems they got. I mean, I can watch games anybody's played in pro or, uh, you know, or if any of the amateur stuff was videoed. Yeah. Uh, I have access going back like five years. There is no dying. For me, without a doubt, the hardest job in pro hockey is the amateur scouting uh, because – you take a kid who's 17 years of age, maybe just turning 18. Some of them within one year drastically change. Others stay the same. And it's, yeah. it's such a pivotal year. Uh, now, and I, my understanding of the amateur, so you go and you're watching kids are all draft eligible. And the kids who are two years away, they maybe watch a little bit. I think this year's draft is going to be as – it's normally a crapshoot anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, other than, you know, normally your top, normally top, your top, top rounds, guys yeah. are pretty much a lock. And then it's, uh, even Jimmy Neal, when he worked in Detroit 10 years ago, um, he said, look, if I'm drafting number 10 or I'm drafting number 30, I got just as good a chance of getting a player at 30. Well, I think this year, because a lot of these kids haven't been seen, I think yeah. those guys are going to be taken in the third or fourth round. That'll probably be better. Uh, uh, than a lot of kids that were taken much earlier. Uh, yeah. it, it takes a, a really difficult job to begin with. And I, and there's so many un and unanswered questions. Yeah. So, uh, but, I, but I think it's going to be, you know, and then like, I'm like you, I, I'm, I'm worried about the border being open uh, a year from now. I'm worried about a lot of that stuff. So uh, I think COVID's still going to impact going into next year. Yeah. Uh, but I'm hoping at least these kids can play. I know uh, my youngest son Nolan coaches a team up in up in Maine, uh, and uh, in the North American League, yeah. uh, they haven't had fans, but at least they've been able to play. And uh, right. you know, I, I can sit and watch their teams play on the computer and stuff. So, um, so at least they have some access. But I mean, all these kids in college hockey, and uh, yeah, it's a difficult situation for everybody. Uh, but in saying that, uh, with every difficult situation, uh, might give somebody an opportunity that maybe wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, yeah. So hopefully, you know, the guys, rather than looking at the negative side of it, look at the positive side and uh, you're going to have an opportunity to make something for yourself. And hopefully, uh, you know, things work out that way. Yeah. No, it's good. Good advice. I, lo I love your feedback. So anyway, yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Like I said, we've kept John for a bit here, but it's amazing you took yeah. the time to do this. So that's right. I haven't gone for a run in two months. Today's my. I'm, I feel like I'm virgin again. So I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm sure my muscles. I, like I said, I'll just I'll try and do a nice quiet three miles and take my time yeah. and uh like i said it'll take me about two months to get back up to, <laughs> i'm sure uh, you still have a nice low resting heart rate so you'll you'll, you'll yeah I, well, I had it down to 58 uh oh, yeah. i think well my, i have a contest going with my granddaughters right so we're gonna <laughs> see who, who can put on the most miles in a year i was uh so I, I was doing great in february i was on pace to do 80 miles 
of yep. running. So, uh, but I had my heart rate down to 58 resting. Yeah. Um, That's so, high. Uh, yeah. But I'm sure I'm sure it's probably uh, probably in low 70s by now. And <laughs> it'll take me about two months of uh, getting it back to where you just don't recover as quickly at this age. It's and all you're choosing recovery. to start the week that it's going up to like 85, 90 this week. You're choosing <laughs> uh, to start. Well, I, and I, uh, well uh, I, I prefer I, I like running when it's in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. So I don't like it when it when it gets too hot. It actually it's too hot. I can't do it. Yeah, so, I agree. So uh, every once in a while, I set my alarm for five thirty. Try to get out before it gets too bad. Yeah. Um, but like I said, the hard part for me, like I said, there's been a health issue in the home, so I haven't been able to do that. So, uh, but now I get we have some caregivers helping out, so uh, they're here to so I can try to get my uh, try. Good thing is I haven't gained any weight. So not oh, yeah. I love eating. I love eating fresh fish and veggies uh-huh. and, and fruit. So uh, generally my diet is pretty good. So I haven't gained any weight. So it's just a matter of uh, getting, uh, getting, and as you know, from working out, it, it, it takes a while. And, you, and when you get to a point, then you feel good, you feel strong. And like I said, I, yeah. The hard part is it's going to take me two months till I feel stronger again, and uh, then the running will be fun more than work. Yeah. Well, the healthy say- eating really, you know, we're big, huge, like health nuts and all that. So at least that gives you an advantage. It's not like you're trying to work out and get your diet back into shape. So yeah. gives you a little bit yeah. of an advantage there. <laughs> and I and I still I, I still enjoy some snacks, but uh, you know, people they they'll bring out some things like nah like. I'll take the extra fish, right? Like, right. I mean, I just really enjoy it. I, I like, I like the taste of those things and yeah. uh, it's what my body's adapted to. So, uh, um, yeah, but it's, uh, I'm glad it's a benefit. It's a lot, uh, a lot better than trying to eat chips and, and uh, stuff every day, even though I, I do, I do enjoy taking my grandkids for the odd donuts. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> donuts and ice cream. That's my yeah. weakness. Oh yeah, I always say Rome wasn't Rome wasn't built in a day, so yeah. <laughs> it's a process. So. Yeah, so I like and, that, and and then you you know you think about all the concussions and uh, different things, and like I said, I lost my mom to Pick's disease, a form of dementia. I lost my dad to dementia, and, um, uh, so I, I know it's in the family. I've had eight concussions, so uh, and the best preventative is to you know create as much oxygen flow to the brain yeah um and i know with my dad so when his health was starting to decline a little bit my younger brother murray is a doctor i uh, got my dad in a cardio rehab program and we spent four or five summers where he would walk three to four miles every day uh, you know and had a pretty good clip and you know well into his mid 80s uh but w- after he started doing that his brain function increased dramatically for about three four years uh, and then he had a stroke, which set everything way back. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there was, uh, uh, there was market improvement, uh, in his ability. So I've seen it. And, uh, so everybody said, well, why do you do that to, you know, keep your weight down? I said, no, nah. I said, I, I work out so I can eat more. Yeah. And I said, I'm, and I don't like seeing doctors. So I'm trying to do everything I can to get, stay out of a doctor's office. So keep your brain healthy. Uh, so that's good. Yeah. Try, trying to do yeah. my bad. So it's, and yeah, it's not the best functioning brain to begin with, but yeah, so I, but I'm trying to give it the best opportunity. Well, that's fish, good. fish and fish oils are brain food. So that's uh well, good luck yeah. today. I hope you yeah. uh, 
farewell in your three mile run today. <laughs> yeah, well, you had me more of a nice slow trot today. Yes. So, <laughs> hey, it's if better I, than I, nothing. If I, can, if I can get it done at 30, if I can do 10 minute miles today, I'll be happy. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, hope to see you soon in person, you know, once all this. Well, we're we're in a good shape down here as far as COVID goes. Things are opening back up, so yeah, hope we're getting to see closer. So yeah. it's uh, yeah, we're getting there. But yeah, I look yeah. forward to it. And again, yeah. thanks for yeah. having me on, and uh, yeah, good luck with the rest of the shows. Thanks yeah. so much. Thanks so much, Mark. All right, Mark. All right, you're welcome. Okay, bye bye. The Parant Favel Generation X podcast is powered by Biscuit Tees and Favel Fitness, bringing you unique comfort and style while optimizing a healthy organic lifestyle. <laughs>